0: Let's join our hearts together again and ask for the Lord's blessing as we dive into His Word. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit who moves like wind, that we neither see nor where the wind comes from or goes, that's Your illustration of how the Holy Spirit moves. We ask that the wind-like work of the holy spirit indeed we ask that the tornado of the holy spirit would touch down in every soul as we look at Christ through your word we ask in Jesus name amen what did you eat for breakfast today and uh, as you think about that Has it tided you over until now? (laughs) And do you think that it will hold off your hunger and the growl that you hope your neighbor doesn't hear until after the members meeting that follows the service? We all know that our our hunger is going to return eventually. And even when we've committed the sin of gluttony, and we've eaten so much that it hurts and it's hard for us to catch our breath, We know that soon enough, no matter how much we've indulged, that in just a few hours, our appetite will again cause our stomachs to growl. The fuel of food for our bodies, including the ways that it wears off in just a little bit of time, is part of God's good design for how we're to live in this world. And food was created by our good and gracious, all-providing God to be a parable of another work that sustains and never wears off. The work of the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's kind of the upshot of the sermon before we turn to the Word. When God's great grace is gobbled down, the human heart is gladdened with great gratification. The more grace you gobble, the more glad your heart is, and the more great your gratification and glorification of God. With that in mind, our sermon text is Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. The final chapter of the book of Hebrews It's toward the end of the Bible. If you go to Revelation and back up a few books, you'll find yourself in Hebrews and go to the last chapter. We'll pick up chapter 13 and we'll begin reading in verse 9. Grace Church, hear the word of the living God. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The Word of the living God. And Lord willing, we'll have two sermons on this text today and again next Sunday. And today's focus will take especially that phrase in verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods and try to tackle it contextually. What in the world is He talking about and how does it apply to our lives? And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll focus mainly on the end of the passage, going out to Jesus outside the camp, seeking the city which is to come. And today there's just two points that we are asking the tornadic work of the Holy Spirit to touch down in our soul The first is the title of the sermon. It's found on that little blue handout. Strange teaching versus strong grace. That comes right out of verse 9. Point number one, strange teaching versus strong grace. Those things are diametrically opposed. Verse 9 says it again, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Plural. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by food. Strange teachings versus strong grace. In one sense, we could say that the storyline of the Bible is a storyline of meals and food and diet and menu. In fact, you can trace the storyline of the entire Bible, Genesis all the way to. Revelation through a series of five main meals, and let me just give you that big picture and then we'll drill down into this passage. The first meal of the Bible is where sin entered the world through the meal of the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. And then another significant meal is found in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, remembering God's mercies and his rescue and redemption of his people. Bondage and slavery, Exodus 12. So forbidden fruit and the Passover. And then we go all the way into the New Testament, Matthew 26, when the Lord Jesus sits with His disciples on the eve before His crucifixion at the Last Supper, instituting the new covenant in His blood and this memorial meal that represents the great crosswork for our redemption. And then the fourth meal, the forbidden fruit, the Passover, the Last Supper, and then 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate here weekly as a remembrance of who Christ is and what He's done for us, but also an anchor of the soul pulling us heavenward, looking forward to the day of His return. The Lord's Supper today we'll observe following the service in our members' meeting. But all those are foreshadows of the great meal to come. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we sit down with our Savior, now glorified, and we'll see the Prince in His hand, and His feet and the thorn mark, uh, the spear mark in His side and the thorn marks on His brow. The forbidden fruit, the Passover, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. The Bible can be traced through the storyline of those meals. We could also go much deeper. God has apparently great uh, affection for the way meals play out and all that they signify in the work of His grace and the lives of His people. We could look at when Abraham encountered the Lord Jesus in Genesis 18 and Sarah baked a batch of her homemade bread and they shared it together before the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate appearance of Christ walked through the severed sacrifices of the covenant emblems of His love. Or when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers not in wrath, but in grace and forgiveness and redemption and provision and that happened at a banquet meal. Or following the Exodus and the Red Sea when the Israelite camp goes through dry land and they emerge on the other side and receive the law at Sinai only to wander for 40 years through the wilderness which would have taken them about 12 days with a backpack to march in a straight line. But God, for 40 years, day after day after day, provided for wayward Israel's, they wandered in the desert, giving to them every single morning a meal of manna as a symbol of His love and His provision. And the people of God were commanded to celebrate time and again the stories of God's grace on an annual basis as He had rescued them and they were to look back and to teach their children the work of His grace in the times of their fathers during various feasts that they were to observe. And Jesus' first miracle when He comes to earth, changing the water to wine, happened at a wedding feast. And on the day of His resurrection, Jesus reveals Himself to two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus. They finally get to His house and they recognized Him in the breaking of the bread. And the Holy Spirit was compelled to give the Apostle Peter of all things a vision as He sat on the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea in Joppa. And in that vision... Peter saw, I think, uh, Cozy Corner's entire menu spread out in front of him. And God was saying to him, kill and eat. The meal symbolized the Gospel to the nations. And the New Testament church devoted themselves. How many countless millions of meals have God's people prepared and spread out on their dining room table inviting others of God's people to their own space? To have koinonia together. and Fellowship together over meals because we find that pattern in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and so on through the New Testament. The Apostle Paul instructed the church in Corinth to eat and drink to the glory of God and one glorious day sin's curse which was introduced into the world through that first meal, will be fully and finally reversed as the people of God dwell in the unbroken presence of God, enjoying the limitless provision of God in Christ when we sit down at that banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So again, you could go even much deeper than that little survey. In fact, the entire Gospel of Luke is structured around ten meals. And Robert Karras has written a commentary on the Gospel of Luke titled, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. In chapter 5 of Luke, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In chapter 7, He had dinner at Simon's with a sinful woman. In chapter 9, He feeds the 5,000 out of a little basket of a boy's lunch. In chapter 10, He reclined at the table at Mary and Martha's. Chapter 11, he had dinner at the Pharisee's house. Chapter 14, he ate a Sabbath meal at another Pharisee's house. Chapter 19, he supped with Zacchaeus after he brought him down from the tree. Chapter 22, he engaged in the Last Supper. 24, he showed himself to the men who were on the road to Emmaus. And again, in the final passages of the Gospel of Luke, the risen, glorified Jesus ate a meal in the presence of His disciples to prove, yes, glorified and risen, but also glorified ever human this is what the author of hebrews is getting at. in christ in his gospel grace we have a gospel meal that nourishes the soul and strengthens the heart that's verse 9 don't be so occupied with food there's a specific kind he has in mind because it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace all those meals I've just described, 10 in Luke and dozens from Genesis to Revelation, those main five meals that show us the structure of the whole Bible, they all are symbols and emblems and parables of the deep work of gospel grace. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at in verses 9 and 10. He's not merely talking about food and menus and your favorite restaurant or your favorite uh, meal that your mom would cook for you, but he's talking about a distinction between law righteousness and Gospel righteousness. He's talking about the difference between works-based religion and blood of Jesus purchased salvation. And he uses food to put it right in our face. He says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those are the two meals that the author of Hebrews have in mind. You either eat this food that was sacrificed to idols, bodies burned outside the camp. Those were not eaten. Those were not the meals. But he's using the whole kind of Levitical sacrificial system and the food that would come out of that, including those bodies and carcasses that would be burned outside of the city. He has that meal in mind, and he has the meal that remains right here, right now, and someone right next to you might now be nibbling on it. The meal that comes from the tree, from the cross, from the bounty of Christ, from the overflow of His endless provision for His people. So the meal that comes from the temple court sacrifices or the meal that comes from the tree cross sacrifice. Verse 9, strange teaching. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching. Don't be lifted up, picked up, taken away by the varied and strange words. That is the teaching that says that any sacrifice other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross for the redemption of your soul as He bore the wrath of God and transfers to you His righteousness on the condition that you believe in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and you turn from every other form of so-called righteousness asking that He clothe you with His own merits to present you favorably before God. Any teaching about any sacrifice that you or somebody else performs other than the sacrifice of Christ will never satisfy, but Jesus, Jesus will satisfy and strengthen your heart forever. We could say it this way. You cannot consume enough of the carcasses of the tabernacle to be made right with God. We could put it another way. If you seek to earn God's righteousness, let's put it in less churchy preachy talk, if you want God to like you, you got to begin with the realization that there's no good reason that He should. you got to begin with a sober awareness that the Gospel has to tear you all the way down before it can begin to build you up. If you want God to like you, if you want what Romans 5 calls the enmity that's between you and God to be taken away, and if you want favor and fellowship, and adoption into his family. If you seek to earn righteousness by the works of the law, you will be doubly ruined. You will be dissatisfied here. Nothing in your life will ever touch that deep spot in your soul that lets you rest. And some of you, I fear, are spinning your wheels constantly trying to have that inner ache satisfied. If you seek to earn righteousness by the works of the law, you're going to be doubly ruined. You will be dissatisfied here. Nothing will scratch that itch here if the law and your effort and your goodness and your religion and your prayers and your Bible study, it's one thing to be saved from your heinous acts. It's another thing to ask God to save you from your best deeds. You cannot fit through the narrow door holding all your good works. You have to be saved from your righteousness. You have to be saved from the best you've ever done. The best thought of God you ever had is polluted with sin and our depravity. You will be dissatisfied here. That's part of the double ruin. But you will be damned hereafter if you trust in law righteousness. So the passage works like this in verses 9 and 10. Gospel grace and works righteousness are diametrically opposed. In fact, it says they were never benefited. We'll get to that in a moment. Gospel grace and works righteousness are diametrically opposed. You cannot have both and. You cannot help God save you. You cannot help Him like you more. Any contribution you would make to have God's favor in your life only worsens your damnable predicament. Listen to the book of Hebrews. Say it perfectly. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 On the other hand, the human heart is savingly satisfied. But not only savingly satisfied, continually strengthened. That language comes right out of verse 9. Continually strengthened by the grace of God purchased for us in the Gospel of Christ. And I get that right out of verse 12. The Jesus who hung on the cross to sanctify His people through His own blood suffered outside the gate. That's what He's got in mind. You can be savingly satisfied. Your ache here And your life hereafter continually strengthened by the grace of God purchased in the Gospel of Christ. Now, just like a fine meal satisfies your hunger, I hope you had a good breakfast today. And just like a fine meal satisfies your stomach's hunger, I know that those of you who are in Christ know exactly what I mean when I say the grace of the Savior sates the palate of your soul. You know what I mean, don't you? Sate. Full. Enough. Nothing else needed. You try to add dash of work salt to that. You try to add dash of flavor spice to that. You try to overcook. You try to change. You try to alter. You try to add to. You try to take away from. It's no longer succulent. But the grace of the Savior sates the palate of your soul soul. Do you want to live a satisfied life? Of course you do. That's why you're here today. Then you must Psalm 34.8. You must you must taste and see that the Lord is good. And the first meal that God invites you to and that statement in and of itself is worth a thousand sermons that God would invite any of us I'll never forget being wrecked by Psalm 15 who may dwell in your tent. Who can live with you, O God? And the chapter gives a positive answer. If that doesn't wreck us, then I don't know that we've read it. We're asking the living God who can move into His house knowing that we crucified His Son. God invites us to a meal and the first meal He invites you to is to taste Him in the Gospel. If you don't show up at that meal, you never taste His grace. You can't do an end around Jesus to come into favor with God. It's beautifully illustrated in those ten meals in Luke's Gospel that I told you the Gospel is really built around that framework. Let me use one of those meals as an illustration to try to drive home what I believe the author of Hebrews is getting at. This never benefits you that is works righteousness temple sacrifice works religion law righteousness it never takes away sin hebrews 10:4 or jesus who suffered for us outside the gate beautifully illustrated in really all the meals in luke's gospel here's one from chapter 7 you remember when jesus goes to the house of simon the pharisee and he's eating there and in walks the woman <laughs> The woman. Everybody knew her reputation. She was known for her loose living and sexual deviancy, promiscuity. Do you remember that the text tells us the omniscient Jesus that we prayed about a moment ago, prayed to a moment ago, He knew Simon's thoughts. Simon never said a word. (laughs) Jesus knew his thoughts. And what was Simon thinking? Simon was thinking if He knew what sort of woman she was, He wouldn't let her touch Him. How was she touching Him? She barges in the door. This couldn't have been their first encounter. You just read the text and you figure that out when Jesus starts to apply His words to Simon. You know it wasn't their first encounter. She barges in the door. She throws herself at His feet as He's reclined at the table. Her tears are wetting His feet with her hair. She's wiping. She's kissing His feet. And then Jesus says to Simon, Simon, knowing his thoughts, Simon, who do you think will love more? The man forgiven a debt of, let me use our economy, $500 or $500 million? Who do you think will love more, Simon? Well, obviously Jesus, the man forgiven $500 million. When I came into your house, Simon, you didn't kiss my feet. You didn't weep at my feet. You didn't wipe my feet with your hair. But do you see this woman? Oh, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Your faith has saved you. This is the Gospel meal that Jesus invites you to. He brings you there first. You got to be like that woman before you get any of the other bounty of Christ. You got to come and say, 500 million is a drop in the bucket compared to the debt that I owe to you, oh God. And you got to come hearing these words. We read it. Oh Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous sin. Acquit me of hidden fault. I'm guilty of great transgression. That's why we read that verse. That's why we read Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to hear the Lord Jesus say, forgive them, Father, as He bleeds and dies for your sin. They know not what they do. Until you meet Jesus at that meal, you get no other bounty. That's step one. And there is no step two until you meet Him there. Anything other than Jesus Christ as the sum and substance of God-pleasing religion is strange and varied doctrine that is to be avoided. It is to be decried. We should pronounce anathemas on it. It is to be condemned. Period. John Calvin was meditating on our text in Hebrews and he says, there is no other simple and unmixed truth but the knowledge of Christ. He who takes not a straight course to Christ goes after strange doctrines. The church of God will always have to contend with strange doctrines. And there is no other means of guarding against them but by being fortified with a pure knowledge of Christ. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Anyone who does not take a straight course to Christ is a wanderer. It's exactly why this passage follows verse 8 in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. Don't be carried away by any varied and strange teaching. Jeffrey Wilson said of our text, what the author calls varied and strange teachings are quote, any teaching which lead us away from Christ. I feel like Samuel Rutherford right now. At least I feel like I can identify with what Rutherford said when he said, I walk a thousand miles to the ocean of Christ's bounty, I come back to the people of God and say, look how beautiful He is. Meanwhile, it's all trickled out of my fingers and I'm trying to show him His beauty and bounty. And Rutherford said, ah, I get it. Unless you go to the ocean for yourself, your jaw will never drop. You will never be taken by His beauty and grandeur. Friends, that's why Jeffrey Wilson and John Calvin and every other commentary I read on this text says, Jesus. Isn't that verse 13? Go to Him. Let us go to Jesus. Go out to Him. So number one, strange teaching versus strong grace. You want strong grace? I've told you where to find it. But let's look at it the way the text presents to us. Our second and final point is the sacrifice that sanctifies. Verses 11 and 12. Let your eyes fall there. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. First Corinthians 6 says that your stomach was made on purpose. God could have done it a trillion ways but He put a stomach inside of you. And the reason He put a stomach inside of you, 1 Corinthians 6, is your stomach was made for food, and then God correspondingly in His great grace created food for your stomach. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 13. But that passage goes on to say both of those things will perish. They exist as a parable for the palate of your soul. Proverbs 23 Do not be with gluttonous eaters of meat. Proverbs 28, He who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. We could go on and on. There is a sacrifice that satisfies us. And this is the argument of verses 11 and 12. See it. There are sacrifices in verse 11 that are made inside the temple and then the bodies of those lifeless animals are taken outside the camp and those carcasses are burned. And it says in the text, never benefited. It's really in correlation to the word sanctify in verse 12. Those sacrifices never, 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 not one time sanctified the people. Do you? Can you imagine? Look, you rolled out of bed, you got cleaned up, you ate breakfast, and you jumped in your car, and you pushed an accelerator, and you came to a building. These people? Saving their little pennies? And going to buy these acceptable sacrifices? Sometimes provided for them near the temple, sometimes not. And then taking those to the priest? And just longing desperately? that they could have what so many in this room share right now and by God's grace don't ever let us take this for granted the knowledge of sins forgiven they didn't they couldn't imagine and so they're just oh let the sin sacrifice and the removal of that sin demonstrated by taking that carcass outside the camp oh god let my sin be gone never 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 not one time We've already read Hebrews 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But the argument of verse 12, is this in the Bible? Christ suffered outside the gate. That, on purpose, with an intention, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood. And He forever did that. Hebrews, again beautifully, explains this. I'll read two passages. We could read 20. Hebrews 10. By this will, the will of God that his Son die for your sin, as a righteous sacrifice, as a sinless sacrifice. By this will we have been sanctified, Hebrews 10:10, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The same thing is beautifully, gloriously unfolded in Hebrews chapter nine. For Christ did not enter a holy place, i.e. Jerusalem's temple, made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, the heavenly. But Jesus entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.25 Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not His own. Otherwise, Jesus would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has been manifested to here's a purpose statement, Put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. It's all over Hebrews. So Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, the bodies of those animals that are sacrificed are taken and burned outside the camp. Oh, you want Gospel glory? Jesus suffered where? In here or out there? He suffered out there. The text tells us in verse 12, He suffered outside the gate. Outside the city where all the kosher sacrifice happened. That's not where He was sacrificed. We call it Calvary because honestly, in hymnody, that sounds more poetic. The place of the skull. Golgotha. He went out there, that guttural Golgotha. He went out there where He bore the wrath of God. What else was out there? Carcasses galore. Blood all over the place. Bones that had dried up in the noonday sun and others that were still fresh and smelled of decomp. All over the place because you didn't eat those sacrifices. Why did those sacrifices not fit into Paul's teaching in Romans or Paul's teaching in Corinthian about eating food sacrificed to idols? Because those were different sacrifices. Those were the sin offerings. Those were the ones on whose head the guilt was laid. So you take their carcass and you throw it as far away from the holy place as you can. But Jesus, who is the true temple and the real holy place, took our sin on Himself and marched His mighty self with a beam on His back outside the camp and took our sin on Himself and bled and died for our forgiveness outside the camp. That's 2 Corinthians 5. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You want fellowship with God? And trust me, you want fellowship with God. You must meet Him at the cross. This text tells us not only where He suffered, not only why He suffered to sanctify us, but also what we are to do about it. Verse 13, let us go out to Him. Outside the camp. Let us never leave the place where our redemption was won. We don't need crucifixes. He's not still suffering. He has risen gloriously from the dead as the conqueror of sin. And as our living righteousness. So let us go out to Him. Let us go to the doorway where we meet God and have fellowship with Him. Let us kneel down our souls before the cross where Jesus bled and died for us to bring us in safely to the presence of God. Go to Him. I mean, go to Him. This is what Calvin and Jeffrey Wilson and all those other people I could have quoted were talking about. Anything that takes you away from Christ, forget it. I'm going to confess to you that I have had the greatest quandary as a preacher of the Bible. Because in 2007, a year into Grace Church's existence, we start preaching series like Toward a Christ-Centered Theology of Scripture. Nine parts, Genesis to Revelation, trying to see what Jesus saw, which David Tucker preached to us last Sunday. That Jesus said the whole Bible's about Jesus. So my quandary comes out in so many broken ways, and one of those is in places like elders' meetings where I'm saying... I only have one sermon. If they keep coming back, that's all we got. To which, Jim Suggs, good dear brother, not only prays for me, but goes home and agonizes with me over our many, many, many limitations and he writes me the most loaded note I've ever gotten. Christ in Him crucified. Nothing else, brother, exclamation point, ever, exclamation point, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. If whatever you're doing in your religious exercise is not taking you to Jesus and Him crucified, quit that. Go to Him. Go where Jesus is. Go to Him fresh where He suffered for your sanctification. Go to the place where He died for your sins. Go see how level the ground is at the foot of the cross. Go see that there's nobody better and nobody worse than you. Go see that it took the blood of the Son of God outside the camp to have sin rid from you. Get away from rituals and law and self-righteousness in your effort to cleanse yourself before God. Stop counting quiet time points and church attendance and anything else you do or don't do as your righteousness. Get outside of the system of temple that depends on human effort to make you right with God. Go away from those things. Run as fast as you can from every effort that you could conjure up to accumulate your own righteousness. Turn away from all your sin, but also plead with God to save you from your best deeds. Ask God to forgive you for trying to meritoriously win His favor or when you sin to wait out your sin before you ask forgiveness to show God how serious you are about it, which in itself is sin on top of sin, which doesn't pay Him back. Ask Him. Agree with Him. Ask God who is your righteousness in Christ to cleanse you of filthy rags which is your best work of righteousness. Positively go to Him. Run to Christ Jesus. Flee to His cross. Go to the place where He suffered for you. Go outside the camp. Go bear His reproach. Embrace the Savior who suffered for your sanctification to cleanse you from your sin. To clothe you with His own righteousness that He may present you holy and blameless before God. And if you have fled to Jesus from refuge from the wrath to come, Fled to Jesus for refuge from the wrath to come. And if you have fled to Jesus for cleansing from your sins, then prove it by fleeing all over again to Christ. And continue to flee to Him. Let us go, verse 13, to Him. Is a present passive. Let us continue to go to Him. The best evidence that you or I have ever turned to Christ is that you are continuing to turn to Christ. If you don't love Him today, then you never loved Him before today. He is the sum and substance of all true God-honoring religion. Well, in application, there are three things that I'd like to say and obviously we could say 300. But I want to try to bring Gospel grace down to the nitty-gritty of some of our lives. I want to say uh, that I know a couple of the things that I'll apply are uh, sensitive and Lord help us. And the first one fits in that category, and that is food was made for your enjoyment and not your enslavement. It's not the main point of the passage, but it certainly is an application. How did sin enter the world? Sin entered the world through a meal. So it's no surprise that food continues to be a source of temptation and sin for those of us who live in this sin-torn world and Christians are not exempt from those challenges. But it has been said accurately that Christian or not, most people in every culture, we heard about the Southeast Asians who uh, are nominal in their religious practice, but probably still bow down five times a day, even nominal ones. But it has been said that all people in all places of the world, usually worship most fully three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Anticipating. Salivating. And when we finally belly up to the table, indulging not only in caloric intake, but really in worship and praise. Terminating our delight in every bite that comes into our mouth. Food is essential for your diet, but it is ensnaring as your deity. Whether you eat or drink, and when you eat or drink, do that to the glory of God. So I just want to say by application, if you are enslaved to food, either in overindulgence or in avoidance, please confide in somebody in this body. And we will pray for you. And we will pray with you. And we will walk with you. And out on that bookstall, there are little booklets by New Growth Press that are so gospel-laden on the struggles that we all have in different extremes trying to live in God's world, God's way. Some of those are related to food and eating disorders and things like that. That's application number one. That is, food was made for your enjoyment, not your enslavement. And you can be enslaved in overindulgence or in avoidance. Number two, the Word of God and God the Word are the richest affair. Jesus is the best portion. I've tried to drive that home already so the application simply would be this. Contrary to the hundreds of programs that have emerged in my lifetime alone when it comes to caloric intake, there is no such thing as a Christian diet. There may be Christians who diet But do not fall prey to superstitions that trifle and masquerade as scriptural truth. That's varied and strange teaching. Kent Hughes says it well. The little Jewish church that received this book of Hebrews was not only harried by the imminent threat of persecution, but was also assailed within... By the succumbing of some in the congregation to a strange teaching that combined esoteric eating practices with their Christian faith, Hughes goes on. "No one knows exactly what the practices were, though we do know that some held that their sacred menu would make them better Christians." Colossians 2:20 destroys that nonsense. Grace is like water. It works on gravity it flows downhill. And folks who are proud about their menu or whatever else are standing in opposition to God. He gives grace to the humble, Kent Hughes would say. Legalisms, even even little ones, such as dietary rules, impede grace. Do not get mixed up with strange teachings such as that leading to spiritual diets. Our nourishment comes from grace which comes directly from the cross of Christ. This meal goes only to the humble. Acts 10, God declares all food clean. Mark 7, Jesus, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, it goes into his stomach, and it is eliminated. Thus, Jesus declared all food clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. At this point, John Calvin reminds us again, strange doctrines proceed from ignorance of Christ. John 4.34 is the food we all want. This is the the Christian diet if there is one. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 4.34 True Christians long for that kind of food that Jesus fed upon Not only the Word of God, but God the Word. To use the Bible as a window, not as an end in itself. We're not bibliolaters. This is an inspired record, but it's a window through which we see God the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God not leading us to God the Word is not the Word of God read rightly. To the true Christian, God's Word is sweeter than honey, more desirable than gold. Like Jeremiah, when we find Scripture, Christians are the ones who want to eat the words of God because they're a joy and delight to our heart. But as succulent as the Word of God is to the taste of a real believer, it is God the Word that is the sweetest nectar to a sanctified palate. That's why Jesus said, John 6.51, and He had manna in mind, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which also I give for the life of the world is my flesh." Our spiritual food, Kent Hughes. You want to know your diet? Here it is. Our spiritual food is nothing less than the life of Christ. We are ever inclined to seek the enjoyment of religion in something external, yet it's only to be found in fellowship with Jesus. Third and finally, by way of application, benefit your heart. I love that word. It's used negatively in our text by which those who are so occupied were not benefited. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, Don't you want to benefit? Third and finally, benefit your heart by seeking God's beloved Son. Verse 9 They were not benefited by religious duty. Their whole lives were devoted to empty religious systems. They were very careful. They invested time and money. They were sincere about their sacrifices. They meant it with all their heart. But friends, sincerity does not save anybody. Jesus saves. They were never benefited. Verse 9, and oh, what a devastating day it would be if any who heard sermons like this, especially time and time and time again, never fled to Jesus. Never sought the beloved Son of God. One writer, Jeffrey Wilson, said, those who continue to serve the tabernacle have any semblance of works righteousness in them debar themselves from any part in the offering of Christ. Turn from everything. Turn to Jesus. John Owen Probably the the prince of the Puritans said, when the Lord Jesus suffered outside the gate, He left the city as an illustration of all unbelievers who would remain under the wrath of God. You stay where the temple works righteousness is, you get John Owen God's wrath. God is lovingly wooing every one of us right now not to waste our life. We can say it from the text. He wants us to benefit. It does not rob... Your pursuit of God of virtue, real love, if you are seeking to benefit as you seek God. You can't say, oh, well, whether I get anything in return or not, I'll seek it. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. That's Bible. You must seek benefit in God as you seek God. Not only the gifts he gives, but the giver himself. In fact, if you don't aim at being rewarded, you're not seeking him rightly. Let's let Hebrews say it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for those who come to Him must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Don't miss that the text says in verse 10 those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of the banquet altar of Christ. No right. They're debarred from fellowship with God. They can't come to the only altar where their sin has been paid for. If you're still holding on to sacrifices that you make in order to present yourself more favor- favorably to God, you disqualify yourself from the Gospel of free grace. You can't help Jesus save you. You have to turn from your sin. You have no right to come to God. That's the words of the text. Until with holy abandon you Holy, abandon yourself to the risen Lord Jesus as all your righteousness. The text is not inducing anybody to passivity. It's not just saying trust Jesus and so what. It's saying trust Jesus and then 13, go to Him, go to Him. Keep going to Him. Bearing His reproach. Well, Lord willing, that will be our focus in the sermon to come. Because Jesus suffered outside the gate, He's available to the whole world. He went out there where those Gentiles were. He's available to you right now. He's enough for you right now. Come, you who hunger. Come and buy and eat without price. Why would you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, says the living God, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Isaiah 55.2 Let's pray together. Father, it is our choice privilege to let our eyes fall on Your inspired Word and to hear the contents of it brought out for us. And Lord, I confess that in this feeble attempt to unfold the majesty of Your Son and the saving righteousness of the Lord Jesus, I'm sure there's enough In this sermon, for me to be condemned, sin in it, error in it. So God, I ask that You would erase from our minds anything I said that was wrong. But I also ask that You would elevate in our minds anything I said that was right. And I ask, Lord, that we would all go to Jesus outside the gate. The One who bled and died the sacrifice of Himself that He might sanctify the people with His own blood. Oh Lord, let us eat that meal. And let us sup at that table. And let us continue to dine with our Savior day after day until one glorious day we see Him face to face. Lord, thank You for the great work of Your grace. Truly measureless incalculable grace coming to us through the righteousness of Your own Son who died and rose again on our behalf. We bless You, Lord. We worship You. We turn our hearts to You right now in praise and in adoration and with thanksgiving. We give You honor. We extol You, O God. We magnify You. We exalt You, God. You are Worthy to be praised. We're glad for the fruit of our lips to give thanks to Your name. You are good. And we have tasted and seen that You are good. Lord, I pray for any outside of Christ that they would flee to Him for refuge. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.